Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, editor with Gestalt IT. IT, that's the name of the website. Dealing with some technical issues here, that's okay. Joining me on the other side of the screen, but not the other side of my heart, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Ken welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rich. A pleasure to be with you once again. It's been a little while. Yeah, it has. Tom has... Ably filled your shoes, shoes, but he can, he can only succeed you, you never replace you. So, so let's get right into the meat of the show, a little segment we like to call News or Not. If you haven't watched the rundown before, this is where there's when there's a little too much news, maybe something that doesn't warrant a full discussion. I go to Ken and I ask, is this news or is this not? We do it. It's a lot of fun. You ready, Ken? I am ready. I feel like I we feel need, like, we need a, like a who wants, who to, wants be to be a millionaire, millionaire. kind of like, kind of like maybe theme setting music. Go for it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you run with that one. All right. First, All right, first up here, Mozilla is taking Project Things, its implementation of the W3C standard Web of Things, out of the experimental stage, adding new logging, alarm, and networking features, along with the new name. Mozilla Web, Web Things. Things. I, guess I guess they wanted to sound, to sound like it was from 1994. 1994. Web Things Gateway is a privacy security focused software distribution. Uh, excuse me. It's, it's a privacy and security focused software distribution for smart home gateways. And Web Things Framework is a library of reusable software components. It's meant for commercial projects. And Mozilla hopes it can be become a trusted agent for users of smart home devices. Mozilla, Mozilla is, a is a thing now? News or not? Well, this is consumer, sounds like a consumer product mostly. Uh, and we like to cover enterprise news. So I say, nah, I do like the fact that they focus on privacy and security, which are severely lacking in many IoT frameworks. So if they kind of pivot to an enterprise IoT platform, then yes, but that's not what this is, at least not yet. Yeah, I mean, maybe we'll see some very small businesses, you know, kind of implement that. And so it's nice, like you said, nice to have a security and privacy focus to this, but yeah. All right, next up, some interesting legal news. After being arrested in 2017 for distributing banking malware, Marcus Hutchins has pled guilty to conspiracy and to making, selling, and advertising illegal wiretapping devices. He claims the 10 charges to date back from his younger days, and he has since turned a new leaf, but takes responsibility for his past actions, which I guess his lawyers required him to do. He came to, he came uh, to uh, National, National Primates, if the name is familiar to you, during the WannaCry ransomware crisis when he discovered the kill switch domain hard-coded into the malware and subsequently registered the domain to prevent the spread further. He is awaiting sentencing but faces up to five years in prison as part of his plea. Great Hat Hacker gets sentenced. News or not, Ken? I think so. I I remember when this story broke, you know, first of all, when he was kind of thrust into the spotlight for stopping WannaCry. And then secondly, when he was invited to Black Hat here in the U.S., I believe it was back in 2017, just a few months later, and then was arrested when he tried to leave the country. And, you know, there was a lot of outrage within the InfoSec community. But then people looked a bit closer. They're like, well, actually, there's some merit to these charges. Apparently, he did dabble in the quote unquote dark side of information security in his youth. But it's a clear case of, you know, do the time or do the crime, do the time. Right. It's not necessarily unwarranted. He has pled guilty. You know, he's, he's admitted, but he's claiming he's turned over a new leaf for what it's worth. 
I, I kind of believe him, especially since, you know, I read about this on uh, is it Brian Krebs, Krebs on Security, his blog, and he's a pretty trustworthy news source when it comes to information security news. But I think this is news. It serves as a great cautionary tale for those folks who are particularly young folks interested in getting involved in information security, that you don't have to be um, a black hat first to become a, a white hat later. Uh, th there's probably a safer path and you need to watch out because your actions will have consequences. So. Yes. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. And, and I think, I think it's, it's, it is worthy of noting that this would, this would you know, because of his involvement with WannaCry, and, and very, very significant, I mean, it's really, really significantly stopped the spread of that malware. malware. Um, but, but otherwise, we would never have heard of, heard of this, you know, you know, right. even, uh, so, you know kind of small-time small -time security blogger, blogger or, or small-time in terms of national prominence, you know, so just kind of interesting. All right, All right, next, next up, up, the French government, government launched, excuse, excuse me, launched to chap, to chap on, April on April 18th, an end-to-end -end -end encrypted messaging app designed to replace government use of other messaging services. services. To chap is based on the open source Riot messaging app, and the source code is published on GitHub. So these are all good things uh, when you're developing software, I think, especially for the government. The app is designed so that only French government employees can sign up for an account. But on the day of the launch, security researcher Baptiste Robert, who has a fantastically French name, discovered a flaw that would let anyone register by adding a government email domain on top of a normal email address. So you'd have johnsmith at gmail.com at frenchgovernment.gov or whatever. Um, and, and then they, they could also, also, once they get access, access potentially view internal communications. communications. The flaw has subsequently been patched, but open source working the way it should or government software always being a bad idea, Ken? News or not? Uh, kind of news. Um, it's not clear to me whether this is a flaw in the open source product that the French government used or whether it was just a bad implementation by yet another inept government agency, right? Uh, which wouldn't surprise me. So regardless of which one's the case, it's probably always a good idea to contract these kinds of things out as most governments do so that you get the competent people working on it, or at least you have somebody to blame. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's that huge of a nuisance uh, story since it was patched quickly, but it was at least uh, a big story for that brief period of time when anybody could sign up. Uh, but thankfully, that's not the case anymore. Yeah, yeah, and the, I, the only thing I hope is that it doesn't dissuade people or government specifically from, you know, you know the, the kind of transparency that open source requires. You know, I think that's always a good thing, whether, you know, you take a project and you maybe don't do the homework to, you know, fully give it the layers of security that you need as a government. Yeah, that's kind of on you, but I hope that doesn't mark a return to more proprietary means, because I do think that's good on principle. Exactly. I agree. All right. All right. CNBC reports that, according to sources, Apple is spending more than $30 million a month on Amazon Web Services, a 10% increase on the year and part of a $1.5 billion commitment over the next five years. That's all according to sources. Apple has not said any of this. Uh, Apple has disclosed previously that they use AWS for iCloud storage, and with over a billion iOS devices out there, the bill doesn't seem that far out there for that. Uh, Apple, Apple is building, building out their infrastructure for expanding service offerings. offerings. They've committed to spend $4.5 billion by the end of 2019 as part of a $10 billion overall investment in data centers by 2023. But is being responsible for 1.4% of AWS annual revenue news or not, Ken? I'd say nah. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised it wasn't more, to be honest. Uh, but it seems like there's an, yet another big name customer uh, AWS announcement every week uh so their revenue just seems to be growing and you know when you, we talk about 
Apple building data centers, is that going to eventually decrease their spend on AWS and decrease AWS's revenue overall? Well, might decrease their spend, but probably AWS's revenue is only going to continue to increase, at least in the near future, because it just has been going like gangbusters. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, would I would like, like to, to see their, their hybrid cloud, cloud deployments, deployments, right? right? For, for, or, or their hybrid multi-cloud craziness, craziness that they have to go on to have, to have that kind of support for all their services, services right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. All right, All right uh, uh, next up, up the Redmond Whisperer Mary Jo Foley reports that her sources are telling her Microsoft has killed plans to integrate the window management feature sets into Windows 10. Sets allowed for users to group app data, websites, and information into tabs, basically letting you look at everything in a browser UI. And testing the feature wasn't well understood, and implementing apps like Office would have reportedly taken a comprehensive overall. Sets was an ambitious vision for how Windows would organize apps in the future. News or not that it's gone, Ken? Considering I didn't uh, know this existed until I just heard about it, uh, nah, apparently. <laughs> It's a feature that they announced, but I have not heard a lot of excitement around it. And I had a bigger reaction to hearing that Paint was going to remain on Windows 10 than I did about hearing that this feature was being canceled. The, the one thing that I thought was interesting with Sets is that it put browser tabs on parity with applications. So one of the things that I always can't stand is that you can't alt-tab between tabs. I know there's a separate command for it, but for me... Tabs, tabs are just another application, application usually, right? right? And I want to cycle, cycle through those just like I would my mail client, my calendar, my calendar that, that kind of stuff. stuff. And, and sets kind of set out a vision where you can do that. that. And that's the main, main reason I'm, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that that's gone. All right, All right next, next up here, Ken. Ken. Intel, Intel releases, releases new coffee-like coffee -like refresh, ninth-generation CPUs. These are still, are, excuse me, these still use the same six-core Skylake microarchitecture, but with power optimizations and running on Intel's very long, very long in the tooth, 14 nanometer process. Uh, these uh, offer up to eight cores on i9s that are able to hit five gigahertz on turbo at only 95 watts. No 10 nanometer, no really cheap quad-core. Is Intel's ninth-gen news or not, Ken? It's not. It's a consumer product. There are no major advancements, just kind of small baby steps. They really need to get off 14 nanometer and they can't do it. So in, until then, there don't seem to be any major, uh, it, it major achievements within their consumer chip line. Yeah, yeah, and it is, you know, you know notable. Intel has, Intel has released, released or at least announced new scalable Xeons. We saw that their innovation data-centric day or whatever they were calling it. Uh, we, we covered that at uh, techfieldday.com. You can see a number of videos on that. They're doing up to, what, 52 cores now or 56 cores? It was one of those two. It was over 50. It was a pretty big number. I don't and, and, and they're doing that by basically gluing together to 26-core chips that they had kind of already there. out there. Still amazing that they can do it in a usable power envelope. But yeah, the consumer side... I don't know. I don't know. They, they have, have competition from AMD. It's, mm -hmm. It seems like they just can't deliver anything else. Yeah, and unless you're like building a gaming PC, you probably don't really care that much about analyzing very closely which CPU you're buying. They're all pretty good. Do some basic research and understand what's right for you, and just you know buy it. All right, well, first, well, first up here in kind of our discussion stories, can at Tesla's, Tesla's Autonomy Day, which confirms we have just too many company days, CEO Elon Musk said that all new Model 3, X, and S vehicles will include the Tesla's self-driving silicon. This marks the completion of transition away from NVIDIA's drive platform. Tesla also revealed that they're working on next-generation hardware aimed at offering three times the performance and plans to have it in production in two years. Tesla claims that with their hardware, 
where their vehicles are now capable of processing full autonomous operation, but are just waiting on the software to catch up. If Tesla can wean themselves off NVIDIA's platform, should NVIDIA be concerned that other automakers will follow? I say no. I mean, Tesla's kind of the rare case of doing everything when it comes to their car technology. And the auto manufacturers are still catching up in many ways to Tesla. Uh, making their own silicon isn't going to be their primary, you know, goal in, in at least not in the next several years. I don't think so. Uh, it's not going to be add to their bottom line necessarily when they can just stick a ready made platform, a ready made solution from a manufacturer like NVIDIA in there and, you know, kind of then move their own self-driving, uh, car business forward. That, that's probably what they're likely to do in my estimation. So. NVIDIA still has a stranglehold on this market, from what I can tell, uh, from chip manufacturers. And losing Tesla um, it might have some impact because they make so many of the very popular electric and self-driving cars. But it's an industry that is growing, and all the traditional auto manufacturers are likely to be their customers for the next several years. I mean, do you think there's, I mean, any, think there's chance any chance that Tesla, that Tesla comes, comes out there, there maybe once, maybe once they've achieved, achieved a level three or a level four, four autonomy on their cars and say, hey, the Tesla autonomy platform is available for licensing, especially if they're having continuing financial pressures? You know, that's true. I guess that could happen. It all depends on whether or not they want to play uh, nice with the auto, other auto manufacturers and do that and whether or not the other auto, auto manufacturers want to in kind, you know, how do they view Tesla as a competitor? Do they want to give them any extra capital by actually buying their platform that will then go back into their R&D for what's essentially a very strong competitor to the traditional auto companies? It's difficult to say. Yeah, yeah I mean, maybe, maybe if another, another automaker, automaker sees NVIDIA, NVIDIA with that stranglehold and thinks, you know, maybe, you know, some, maybe competition. some competition, you know, might be, you know, better, might for be better for the industry overall, but that's a that's, that's, a, that's a, long a long way off. And the way that they design cars is like it takes so long to engineer and design a car that they're probably not just going to rapidly change gears and switch the platform within their self-driving cars. They probably want to design one model and make minor iterations on it over the next few model years like they've done for you know decades. Yeah. So yeah. they're probably not going to swap out the self-driving silicon and software within that from one minor release to the next. Yeah, yeah although maybe, maybe that's, that's where NVIDIA's, NVIDIA's modular, modular approach bites, bites them, them a little bit, bit but, but we'll see. We shall see. In, in other, other chip news, Samsung, Samsung announced plans to invest more than $116 billion in non-volatile chips over the next decade. This includes $63 billion for R&D and $52 billion on fabs and other production infrastructure. The moves show the company is shifting focus from purely memory and smartphone markets, which have stagnated or are all-out decline. This sets them up to rivals as TSMC and increasingly Huawei as well. Uh, Huawei was releasing a number of AI-focused chips over this past week, we don't, we don't have, have samples, samples or anything like that. It was just announcements, so that's kind of why we're not focusing on those on this show. But the company aims to be logic chip leaders by 2030. Is this inevitable given the amount of money they're throwing at it? Um, I don't know if it's inevitable. I, it's certainly a good effort. You know, Traditionally, I think of Samsung as a memory and screen manufacturer, frankly. Uh, and yes, I guess chips too a bit in, in the mobile space. Um, you know, it, it looks like 5G connected cars and AI are the focus. Uh, those are all good you know, segments to get into, good markets to get into. Um, but they're going to st face stiff competition from the likes of, say, NVIDIA, who just bought Mellanox, or Qualcomm, who just struck... Uh, struck a major exclusive deal with Apple. So 
it's probably a good idea to invest in chip manufacturing, whether or not they can become a leader with, with the other manufacturers that are also ratcheting up efforts it is difficult to say, though 2030 is a long way out. So it, it is possible. Uh, I don't know if it's inevitable, though. Well, and, well, and Samsung, Samsung is always, at least historically, kind of kind of competes against itself in a lot of ways. So I don't expect them to fully move away from TSMC. I mean, they put Qualcomm chips in their smartphones all the time, right? Because those work better in certain markets than their Exynos processors. So, you know, I could see that kind of competition actually making this better in the long run, but... You know, you know fabs, fabs are super, are super expensive, expensive to make. I mean, I mean that's, that's one of the reasons why basically everyone goes fabulous after a while other than three companies, basically. And so getting into that market shows what a land grab we still have for AI, 5G, those kind of emerging markets where there aren't set leaders yet. There are companies well poised to be in that space, but I think it's very interesting. All right, All right, an interesting, interesting partnership was announced this week. Arm and Docker announced, announced a strategic partnership to streamline development and delivery of apps in the cloud, Edge and IoT. At DockerCon, the company will demonstrate ARM capabilities built into Docker desktop community, and all developer commands will work directly on ARM. You don't have to learn anything new to kind of run your, run your stuff, stuff on ARM. Docker, Docker is also integrating the ability to push Docker Enterprise Engine for ARM-based Amazon EC2 A1 instances into production. Basically, Docker will make it easier to run apps on ARM, and ARM will make Docker solutions available on the ARM Neoverse platform. With the dominance of Kubernetes in the cloud, is the edge and IoT a logical space for Docker to target? I think it is. I think containers are a good fit for IoT uh, simply because of, as we talked about, the application portability nature. If you've got a fleet of IoT devices and you want to push the latest version of the app to them, you've got a way to do that. If you want to update a bunch of outdated devices, you're just going to go to all your sites and kind of rip and replace. Now you have an easy way to get the application, the software you want back on those devices without rewriting it, refactoring it, doing all kinds of testing. So it's a great fit and it's different enough than Kubernetes, which is a you know completely different ac application architecture way of controlling apps that is well suited for web scale for large scale applications that you know are broken out to many component parts but work together as one cohesive large application which is not exactly what IoT does uh, so it's kind of Docker trying to find their place in this container world now that Kubernetes has taken a lead and you know this is probably a, a good way to do that in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll need, need to see exactly what this looks like, what kind of developer interest there is for it. I mean, I still think there is a lot of goodwill out there for Docker, but recently the narrative has definitely been this is a company that, not in decline, but has lost out on the cloud and is trying to find their place. And mm -hmm. this kind of shows a vision from the company that I think is encouraging for a lot of people. Sure, yeah, and, and containers can be more than just a cloud native application platform. There's so many other things. And this is a good example of that. Yeah, yeah, and I wonder if this this also has a really positive implications for the security situation with IoT, where you know you know maybe with a containerized approach, it's just a lot easier to push out uh, you know security patches, updates, that kind of thing without fundamentally breaking anything. That's a good point that I hadn't considered, but yeah, I mean, it's a huge concern in IoT. Kind of as we we already touched on that earlier uh, during the episode, and absolutely that could help make a huge difference. I, I, mean, I mean, I think we're, I think we're both in agreement. This, this is a much bigger, bigger announcement, announcement for Docker, Docker than it is for ARM, ARM right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, ARM is just, you know, gaining acceptance as the uh, 
low power chip of choice in so many deployments that aren't just you know your traditional uh, data center server or desktop computer. It's not even funny. It's kind of the chip of the future, and everybody wants a piece of it, including Docker. And it's so yeah, it's it's a win for Docker. For ARM, they're probably just like yeah, we have somebody else that we can uh, another logo we can put up on our PowerPoint slides. <laughs> and that old, and that NASCAR, old NASCAR slide. slide. Uh, you, know, you know, we talked about Huawei, Huawei a little bit ago, kind of, kind of being maybe a competitor for what Samsung is going to be doing with chip fabs, but they, but they recently told journalists that they're working on something new, DNA storage. Now, they're not the first company to do this. We've seen Microsoft, Intel, IBM all make announcements around this. But while still in development, Huawei is planning to fit 700 terabytes into a one millimeter cube. So one millimeter on all sides, uh, or, or put it another way, they could back up all the world's data in about 16 pounds of DNA. What's, What's the, the catch? catch? This sounds awesome, right? Well, you know, you know now writing four megabytes of data with the technology that they have takes roughly five days or about 10 bytes per second. Uh, we, did uh, we did a story about this in 2017 when Microsoft had wanted, or excuse me, they announced that they were going to proto-commercialize I don't know, I don't what, know that what that means. means. DNA, DNA storage, storage somewhere, somewhere around 2020. And they, and they had claimed that they were able to get about 400 bytes per second of writes uh, with, with the goal of hitting 100 megabytes per second for a fully commercialized product. So just to kind of show how far away they were from that in 2017. Um, DNA is dense and durable, right? It's Two really, two really good things to have, to have for storage, storage but, will but will access speeds always keep this a niche solution if it ever gets commercialized at all? Yeah. Well, all those things that you mentioned, you know, it being dense and it being, um, what, what was the other one? Durable. Yeah. I guess maybe if we talk about getting up to that, you know, pie in the sky figure of 100 megabytes per second, then we've got maybe a viable archival storage platform, but, but not else than that. And what's the value prop? over existing archival storage platforms at that is it that it's going to be smaller form factor and we can cram more into uh, a data center or whatever location we're trying to deploy it in i guess is it going to be lower power consumption, consumption? I, don't I don't even see any mention, mention of that, that in the story, story. so well, why is it better other than we can fit a ton of data in a much smaller form factor i'm not really clear on that and i'm not sure what the value prop is especially when we're talking talking about such slow access speeds but who's going to want it what's it good for yeah maybe, yeah, maybe it's, it's a, a great, great end, end of the world, world uh, archival apocalypse kind of storage, storage medium. So when we need to restart human civilization, we can have our DNA storage computer that has all of the world's knowledge. But yeah, but yeah, it's so far, so far out from any kind of commercial product, product that, that yes, it's a fascinating science experiment. experiment and it's, mm -hmm. and it's, really, it's, like, it's in like in the news of really cool that we can do this, but yeah, until it gets some kind of viable access speed. You can't, you can't even begin to formulate, to formulate those kind of questions that you would really want to ask of it, right? Yeah, it might be a cool futuristic technology that actually makes sense somewhere in the next 10 to 30 years, whatever the case may be. But right now, I can't really see what it will be good for other than scientists playing around with it. Well, just to give, well, you, an just to give you an idea, though, of the density, of the density that, it's that it's capable of hitting, the max, the max capacity, capacity for magnetic media, basically, basically the best case scenario for like tape storage, for example, is 23 gigabits per square centimeter, square centimeter right? Okay, so it's, okay, so it's, it's a 2D that's a 2D medium, medium basically, basically. You know, you're, you're only able to write on, on, two, on two dimensions there. Researchers, Researchers at Harvard had previously found at least a capacity of 5.5 petabits 
per per cubed, cubed millimeter, millimeter, millimeter per millimeter cubed or whatever. Or whatever. Um, so um, there, so is there is several orders several of orders magnitude of magnitude more density that density you can, that can fit, fit into that medium. That medium. Admittedly, admittedly, it would take you longer than the span of all of human civilization, civilization to fill up, fill up that capacity, that capacity right? <laughs> right. And are we running out of uh, physical space for all our storage media in the world? I mean, I guess it would be great to shrink data centers. Who wouldn't be in favor of that? It's probably going to, you know, reduce, you know, costs in many ways and, you know, reduce, reduce energy, energy consumption. consumption. So, hooray, yeah, yeah that's, that's a great goal to have. have. But <laughs> it's, it's not the immediate need that I see uh, these days. And just, and from, just a from a science perspective, you know, you know DNA is something, DNA is something, something that we understand because, because you know, you know, it's a building block of life. Of life there's a lot of, there's a lot of science behind it, right? Behind so, it, right? But, so, I but I have to wonder, is that is the that ideal, ideal um, organic, organic method of storage, storage right? Or is there right? something, or is there something kind another kind of artificial uh, organic, uh, organic compound, compound that we could that create, we could that, create that would be better suited for this medium. It's just that we understand DNA better. DNA better. I guess it's more, more of a science fiction, science fiction question than anything. Than but anything. but it, got me thinking, it got me thinking that when I was reading this piece. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, what else can we store data on? Maybe uh, we'll have a petri dish full of bacteria storing our, our life's data on it. Who knows? <laughs> Well, well uh, what I do I, what know, I do is, know that is that this is the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Ken, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Rich. My pleasure as always. Where can people Where find, can people more, find of more of your stuff? great stuff? I am all over the Twitters. I am at Ken Nalbo, and I'm also writing constantly on gestaltit.com. And you can find me sometimes on my Batman job, as Tom Hollingsworth likes to say, at least uh, over at uh, techfieldday.com. We will be at Dell Technologies World next week on Wednesday, May 1st. So check us out then starting at 1.30 p.m. Pacific time, May 1st. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can find me at gestaltit.com as well, or on the Twitters at Mr. Anthropology. That's M-R Anthropology. We'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, running down the IT news of the week. Until then, remember, everybody, have a super sparkly day.